right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Playware, P-L-A-A, Play. Go to pressplay.com to get your latest fashions and fits for the fall season coming up. It's getting chilly out there. Make sure you get outfitted in the best of Playware. That's P-L-A-A, Play. Go to pressplay.com. Thank you so much for joining us on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Again, I'm your host, Joel Payne. Uh, It's been a little while. Wanted to wait for something good to talk to everybody about. And uh, you're in luck, and I'm in luck, because um, we've got a really interesting, timely topic to discuss. And we've got an awesome person to discuss with us. Um, Folks who listen to the podcast know I love to also have people who not just I think are smart because I hear about them, but because I actually have gotten a chance to know them uh, for a variety of reasons over the years. And um, I'm fortunate to have that this week in the form of Kelly Hall. She is the uh, executive director of the Fairness Project, and she and I are fellow uh, alum of Brown University, and we probably ate up about 12 minutes catching up on all things, including our favorite professors and uh, what it was like to be 19 and wrong about everything. Uh, Kelly, what's going on with you? Thanks so much for joining. Joel, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here and to see your face. Yeah, likewise. Uh, it's great. I'll, I'll keep all of our um, talking about life in Providence um, off record for right now. We'll focus on some Thank important you. issues of the day. Um, Kelly, you're the executive director of the Fairness Project. First off, maybe just tell the listeners about the work that you're doing there. Absolutely. So the Fairness Project is an organization that lives and breathes ballot measures as a tool for change to advance issues that are central to the priorities of working families. So that's stuff like raising the minimum wage, expanding Medicaid, ending the predatory practices of payday lenders, requiring paid leave. These are all common sense issues that have a ton of public support but are not making progress in the states because we have legislatures and other elected officials that are either beholden to industry or ideology or you know have other priorities and so people can really use ballot measures as a way of bringing forward change that matters to them regardless of what the political environment is and the fairness project exists to support those local coalitions in doing that we both fund ballot measures but we also help co-pilot ballot measures um, making sure that we follow our two rules. Now, rule number one is win, and rule number two is don't lose, because when we put these questions in front of voters, we really want to make sure that the answer is yes. We don't want to set back advocacy progress um, with an unfortunate result. Those are some good rules to live by, win and don't lose. Um, yeah. Uh, my, the sports teams that I root for could probably benefit from hearing those as well, Kelly. Um, you know, You talk about just the issue of ballot measures overall, and I want to hover on that for a second, because, look, um, in the time that you and I both, you know, we kind of came up together in um, politics on Capitol Hill, but also progressive politics. And I think this has been a thing that has grown in impact and importance um, and frankly, in the attention that it's gotten. Um, It's it's an important way, obviously, for citizens to have their voices heard uh, more directly, um, some would say more democratically, but also um, engagement, right? This helps juice engagement and um, keep voters um, aware of kind of issues of the day that might, um, the the legislatures in their different states may be avoiding and may not be tending to. Can you just talk a little bit about just like the overall landscape related to ballot measures overall? 
Absolutely. So I think that there's a few key points here for us as progressives to think about how we're making change. One is, I think that winning is motivating. And I'm really proud of the record at the Fairness Project. We've won 20 out of the 21 campaigns that we've been involved in, including in tough places like Oklahoma and Idaho and Nebraska and Missouri and Arkansas. So there is something really powerful about giving both voters and activists on the ground in states that are often considered to be deep red an opportunity to win rather than just continually fight the good fight and either get halfway there or have your candidate win but still be in the minority. There's something really powerful about winning, not just, uh, you know, trying, that is creating a huge groundswell of engagement and activism in these states. And then the second thing is winning means changing lives when it comes to ballot measures. There is a direct linear connection between you know, us winning a campaign to raise the minimum wage and people getting higher wages, which is different than voting for a candidate who supports a higher minimum wage. But it's maybe not up to them whether or not that bill comes to the floor, whether it passes, whether it's in the agenda. And so having opportunities for voters to create a linear connection between I go to the polling place or I mail in my ballot and then my life changes or my neighbor's life changes three months from now or six months from now, it is a very powerful way for us to um, talk to voters who may otherwise be disillusioned with the process. And I think that that is an incredibly important role that ballot measures play. And we've changed the lives of 17 million people in these seven, you know, these 20 campaigns that we've won. We've raised the minimum wage, we've expanded Medicaid, we've expanded paid leave. That is a huge number of people who are seeing their lives transformed by engaging in the electoral system, and that's pretty profound. And then the last thing I'll say is, this is one of the primary tools we're using to make change in deep red states. So where progressives may feel like they don't have any other levers of power, we are still able even in the Trumpiest of times, pass Medicaid expansion in Oklahoma, pass Medicaid expansion in Idaho, raise the minimum wage in Arkansas, expand paid family leave in Colorado, and prove that sometimes things aren't quite as you know divisive or polarized on these certain issues as those of us on the coast may believe. And I, you know, I say that sitting here in sunny Oakland, California, I'm very much. <laughs> one of those one of those folks on the coast but we do all of our work in in red and purple states you know you kind of frame it appropriately um in terms of what's really at stake um in all these places i mean you're talking about you know these kind of deep red states but let's be honest this is really kind of the blueprint and it kind of sets in motion um things that that catch on across the country um it's you know in a lot of ways this is a part of the front line of that battle to preserve and save democracy, right, is, um, you know, winning on these issues and these ballot measures. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the ballot measure rescue campaign. It's a $5 million initiative that uh, the Fairness Project recently launched. And um, I know you've got some more information about it. And you have um, a lot of local and national partners that have joined forces with you to um, help stand this up. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Well, 
I would love to. And also I'll say this is one of the things that comes with winning. Once you're winning, um, the folks you're you're working against for you know, intransigent uh, legislatures, they fight back. And so because we've been winning in a bunch of these places and also because other folks using ballot measures, particularly those who are using the tool to decriminalize marijuana and drugs of other types, are winning successfully in the last four, six years, um, now the red state legislatures are trying to make it harder for those of us who are bringing forward people-powered ballot measures to access that process. So we saw already this year in 2021, nearly 90 pieces of legislation in states around the country get introduced or passed. Things that would do horrendous damage to this most democratic of our democratic institutions, saying you've got to collect vastly more signatures in order to qualify an issue for the ballot. That anyone, volunteer or otherwise, who wants to pick up a clipboard and collect signatures would have to pay a fee to the state, which is just a poll tax for participation. The idea that we would raise the threshold for passing ballot measures from 50 to 60 percent. All of these things are designed by the same legislatures that are trying to make it harder for people to vote or curtail how people can vote are now trying to curtail what people get to vote on. And so on the one hand, when you know people are coming, when people are coming after you, you know you're succeeding. You know you're making a difference in the world. But it also means that we have to stand up and say, this is a fundamental pillar of our democracy. This is a fundamental way that people get to exercise their voting rights. And we need to fight back against these attacks in every possible way. So we're proud to be launching this initiative that includes litigation, that includes running no campaigns at the ballot box to make sure that these changes don't get enacted into state constitutions, and also to support local partners who are you know, on the front lines in their legislatures trying to prevent these bad bills from passing. But it's really an onslaught. And I think, you know, we just stand shoulder to shoulder with all sorts of national organizations who are fighting back against these suppressive attacks against voting. So there comes the Payne podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Uh, we're presented by Playware, P-L-A-A, Playware, and I am joined on this episode by Kelly Hall. She is the executive director of the Fairness Project, and Kelly is telling us about the work that uh, the Fairness Project is doing all around the country um, on the front lines of the battle related to ballot measures, and she's educating us about um, a big campaign that she and um, a number of partners and members of a coalition are launching called the Ballot Measure Rescue Campaign. Um, Kelly, in particular, there's some news on this front in Mississippi. Um, there's a Supreme Court case related to medical, medical marijuana, which I know you referenced a little bit earlier. Um, this is actually kind of a good example of like the, the work that you're doing, right? Yes. And I will say, you know, Mississippi, we should dive into because it is an egregious case. Um, where the ballot measure process that Mississippi voters have relied on has been is currently invalidated. It is this is the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the states around the country with this privilege, and I think it's emblematic of what's at stake here. So I'll I'll give a couple of concrete examples. The pe- good people of Mississippi qualified a ballot measure to uh, decriminalize the use of marijuana for medical treatment. Uh, and voted on that, overwhelmingly passed it last fall in 2020. That was not just 
Democrats in Mississippi, that was 70% of voters in Mississippi approved that ballot measure. Then a very politicized Mississippi Supreme Court got clever. Uh, they, they responded to a challenge to that ballot measure um, by not only ruling against the constitutionality of that ballot measure, um, but invalidating citizens' rights to bring ballot measures in their entirety by saying, you know what, our state constitution says that when folks want to bring a ballot measure forward, you got to collect 20% of the signatures from each of our five congressional districts. Seems reasonable. Except Mississippi hasn't had five congressional districts for decades. They only have four. And so the Supreme Court was like, this means that no one should have been able to use this process <laughs> for the last 30 years because it's impossible to get 20% of your signatures from each of the congressional districts if there's only four. Um, so they threw out the entire thing on this technicality, a process that had been used by by Democrats and Republicans alike, had been approved by every Republican attorney general, you know, for decades, and said, you know, tough shit. I hope that's, you know, language that's okay with your listeners. Uh, but it's hard to keep four-letter words out of the vocabulary when it comes to deep <laughs> disenfranchisement in the South. Um, so this meant not only that Mississippi voters don't have medical marijuana available to them right now, it also shut down a ballot measure process that we had launched with partners in Mississippi to expand Medicaid there, which would have brought health care to nearly 300,000 Mississippians. And all of that work is on hold while we fight, uh, and I'm taking a big collective we here because there's a lot of people who care about voting rights in Mississippi, to have that process restored. And in the meantime, Mississippi voters are beholden exclusively to legislators and a governor to rule on all matters of importance to Mississippi. They have no way of bringing forward issues themselves, which is really, uh, really limiting and really disappointing. And we, um, we had been hopeful based on what uh, the governor first said when he, um, when the Supreme Court ruling came out, that he would call a special legislative session to both enact what voters had passed as a ballot and also refer a new ballot measure to voters to fix this quirk in the Constitution. So far, he has yet to make good on those promises. Um, there's a lot of legislative support for both things, and yet here we are, stuck without stuck without much progress. Um, wow, that's a pretty uh, harrowing uh, tale that you tell there. And, you know, look, it's great that organizations like yourself, there's clearly resources that are being um, dumped into uh, making sure that, again, there is a, you know, vociferous defense um, of this really important part of the democracy. But I'd imagine on the other side, it's pretty well funded and pretty well resourced as well. What do you know about who's on the other side of this fight that you're waging, right? I mean, I'd imagine big corporate interest, I'd imagine kind of entrenched um, power. Um, there's, there's a lot of lobbies that want to fight against the things that you're trying to preserve on behalf of citizens. Just kind of curious about what's on the other side of what you're fighting. I think that this is one of those where we find ourselves in good company. It's the same folks who are bringing forward attacks on voting generally, um, and overall that are also bringing forward attacks on ballot measures. There's something that goes gets kind of personal with legislation.
legislatures because they believe that they should be the only ones to be able to enact laws um, in their states. And every time we pass a ballot measure, it's because the legislature refused to act. We're always sort of going around the powers that be. And so this is part and parcel of a of a broader, more insidious, some pieces of it above the radar, some of it below, that is really aimed at curtailing democratic participation. And so all of the same forces that are quietly behind restricting who can vote, how they can vote, you know, are also trying to restrict whether or not citizens can bring forward issues to vote on. Um, so it's hard for us to know sometimes who is behind uh, these proposals and campaigns. A lot of that is happening um, with dark money and, and clouded transparency or lack of transparency, but it is uh, a highly coordinated attack. We're seeing this happen. The same sorts of uh, proposals are happening in almost every state around the country. So we know that there's a coordinated force, both on voter suppression and on attacks on ballot measures. Yeah. You know, you and I both, um, I, I said, our career, our, our lives intersected, um, at, at, you know, when we went to school together, but our careers intersected when we both worked on Capitol Hill around the same time in the early parts of our careers. And what I'm always struck by is when you, you're kind of working kind of with kind of federal legislation, you're doing the federal fights, the national fights. I think it's easy to overlook these state level fights. And I'd argue, unfortunately, as a progressive, we've somewhat overall been outclassed on these state level fights over the duration of our time in politics, right? Whether it's redistricting fights, whether it's, um, you know, just making sure you're winning legislatures and governorships um, in these states across the country. And this is another, you know, what we're talking about here with ballot measures is another example of like, you know, a really kind of state focused issue that it kind of feels like maybe progressives are, look, it certainly feels like we're in the fight right now, but maybe we haven't been historically. Just be curious about your perspective on that. I think that this is one of the areas where I'm most hopeful because it does feel like we're intervening before this tool, this lever of power is lost to us. I'm very proud that progressives have actually out-organized the opposition on ballot measures in the last six or eight years. If you look at what has been passing at the state level through ballot initiatives, they, those issues really do trend progressive, raising the wage, expanding Medicaid, decriminalizing marijuana, great conservation efforts, uh, a set of policies that are really um, affiliated with the Democratic Party, but of course don't have to be positioned that way in these states um, because ballot measures have a secret superpower where you can take partisan affiliation off of an issue and have a communication just with the electorate about that one item. So I think we are at risk of waking up a couple of years from now and reading a New York Times story that says, you know, what happens to ballot measures? This was such a phenomenal tool that progressives used from, you know, year X to year Y, but then it slipped away from them. Um, sort of like we've had those postmortems on how did we lose all of these state legislatures, lower court justices, you know, school boards, a set of other things. And right now we really do partially by necessity, because this is one of our only avenues left in a lot of red states, we are using this tool more than the opposition. And I think it's really incumbent upon all of us to not let that postmortem be written. 
you've got to stand up and say, we've let a lot of other levers go by the wayside. We've been out organized at the state level in a lot of different ways. We got to bring some money and some muscle to this fight if we are going to hold on to this tool for making change. Because I don't know about you, Joel, you're the, the national political expert, but I am not that confident that every priority that we want to pass is going to pass at the federal level. And we're going to need to make progress bit by bit, state by state. Yeah. Uh, by the way, appreciate your liberal use of the term expert there. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I take your point and I, I think, um, the context you're laying out here is important. So there comes the pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Again, we are joined by Kelly Hall, the executive director of the fairness project. We're talking about the important work that she and her organization are doing related to ballot measures across the country, but also, um, intersecting some other issues. And Kelly, I just want to take a second here actually to talk about this, this, again, this rescue campaign that you and your organization are launching, you know, big multi-million dollar investment into it. But, you know, looking over just kind of some of the data, the stuff that you're working against, I mean, I'm just looking at some of the things that are going on in these states across the country. In Arkansas, they have like a 60% supermajority to pass all ballot measures. Um, Also in Arkansas, they set restrictions on like paid canvassers. You know what it actually sounds a lot like to me? It sounds like this voting rights fight that we know is going on almost like on a parallel track where the other side, to your point, they realize they've kind of been outclassed on this over the last six to eight years. And so they've decided to kind of rig the rules and rig the system because they can't win on the merits of their ideas um, because they've kind of like lost the culture war on this stuff. I guess I have two questions. Just one, just some of the more, um, you know, um, outlandish things you're fighting against out there. I'd love for you to call out. I called out a a few of them, but um, also just kind of this whole uh, comparison to like another big fight, um, the, the, the voting rights fight. And I think it's embedded in this idea that conservatives have lost the culture war on a lot of stuff in the time that you and I have been of kind of political, um, you know, just aware and in the political world. I mean, the gay marriage, um, gun rights, I'd argue. I'd argue that legislation hasn't caught up with that, but that, you know, popular support is with where people who vote and think like us are. There's a number of those issues where they've lost the culture war, but they've decided to focus on rigging the system. Be curious as to your thoughts on that as well. Rigging the system is the right phrase. And part of the way they're able to rig the system is by making changes that are dull, right? No one is waking up any every morning, going to work, feeding their kids, thinking, I wonder what the threshold is to bring, What? how many signatures do I need to qualify a ballot measure? I wonder what hours voting will be opened at the next election. I wonder whether I'm going to be able to mail in my ballot. These things, when they are getting passed in state legislatures, seem procedural, they seem dry, they're dull, they're not making headline news every day, but cumulatively, then we wake up and realize it is hard for people to vote, it is hard for people to run for office, it is hard for us to qualify ballot initiatives, and it's hard for us to win them. And taken together, that means that they've consolidated power among a very small number of 
of elected leaders, and uh, there's fewer and fewer avenues for us as an electorate to do anything about it. So you gave a couple of great examples from Arkansas. I'll give you a few more. South Dakota is also trying to change its definition of majority and say, if you want to pass a ballot measure in South Dakota, you've got to pass it by 60%. We're also seeing attacks where they do dumb things that no one would care about, but are things like, if you want to collect signatures on a petition, your entire law has to be written on one sheet of paper and it has to be in 14 point font, <laughs> which means then you've got sheets of paper that are the size of bath towels that canvassers are out there having to fold up and then unfold every time somebody wants to sign because you have to put your entire legislation and all the signatures you're collecting onto one sheet of paper in 14 point font. And it's just nonsense stuff like this that you go why does this have to be so hard why does it have to be so complicated why do people have to pay a fee to collect signatures these are the sorts of things that taken together exclude people from the process make it hard for people to participate and no one thing makes it impossible for us to make change no one curtailing of voting rights excludes everyone but taken together this is the trend. It's rigging it against regular people getting involved. That is fascinating. I mean, who knew that, um, you know, folks on the other side of this issue would be doing the same thing that uh, co-eds in college would be doing to try to, um, you know, to, to hit their uh, hit their page count <laughs> on term papers that they're turning in to try to restrict uh, rights and restrict access to democracy for so many folks. That's 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 jarring. That's really, really revelatory. Um, you know, and looking at the partners that you have announced with this ballot measure rescue campaign, and the thing that jumps out to me, um, and I think kind of speaks to the fight that you're engaged in here, is just the diversity um, in the partners that you've pulled together. Diversity, obviously, just in terms of representative diversity, but also in terms of the issues um, that these folks are fighting on behalf of. Maybe um, talk a little bit to the you know, listeners here about um, the thought process and pulling these partners together and maybe some consistent themes that you're hearing from these different partners as you, again, you pursue this really important work. So there are very few organizations that live and breathe ballot measures all the time, like the Fairness Project does, but there are a lot of organizations who see ballot measures as an important plank in their strategy on issues that they care about. So folks like Drug Policy Action, Planned Parenthood, All on the Line that focuses on redistricting, uh, ACLU that has brought ballot measures on all sorts of different civil rights and criminal justice issues, the list goes on. Um, among our national partners on those specific issues, they can recognize that there's sort of a tragedy of the commons here. No one issue-specific organization wants to stand up and say, I'm going to devote millions of dollars in resources to fight back against this new 60% threshold rule in Arkansas, not central to my organization's mission. But if everyone says that and no one defends against it, then the next time we want to bring a redistricting ballot measure or a choice ballot measure or a drug decriminalization ballot measure, we wake up and realize that none of these states have viable processes left. And so the thought process and bringing a lot of partners together to bring both expertise and pr 
prioritization and resources is to say, we have to collectively look at this problem because if we don't, we'll lose this vital tool. And we've also brought key leaders from states that have vibrant ballot measure processes that have been used to achieve great change, like Missouri, South Dakota, Mississippi, Colorado, California, to say, what are the greatest threats? What's strategic to do on the ground? What do, how do we need to engage here? And so it's both national and state partners and a real geographic diversity of how do we prioritize, prioritize to make sure that we're not letting any state fall off the map for, for where we can make change with ballots. Absolutely. I think that's good framing. Um, and Kelly can probably see, um, she probably saw as she was giving that very eloquent answer, my dog, Roscoe, who has made an appearance in several of these uh, podcasts, attempting to uh, get his two cents in related to uh, the conversation we're having here. Sorry about that. <laughs> I have a dog named Lewis, named after American hero Congressman John Lewis, but my dog has none of the dignity and grace that his namesake brought to the world. And so he is at daycare today because he can be trusted when anything is being recorded to you know, get into not so good trouble. <laughs> Roscoe, Roscoe's pretty good. Uh, hopefully he can keep the streak going and not make me look like a fool here. Um, you know, Kelly, um, this has been really just, you know, great background to get on the work that you guys are doing um, with this campaign. Is there is there other related work that um, we should know about? Um, I, I know that, again, you've been in this fight for over five years now, and it sounds like the work you've done has impacted, what, nearly 17 million people, um, I, I think, by, uh, by by the count that I saw. But just maybe talk to us a little bit about some other work that you're involved in as well. Sure. So as important as this defensive work is, it's not why we get out of bed in the morning. We get out of bed in the morning because we can make real change in the world using ballot measures. And so in just 10 days, Folks will be going to the polls in a whole bunch of municipalities and have the opportunity to vote on ballot measures. And I would just encourage everyone listening to this who is going to the polls on November 2nd to vote all the way to the end of your ballot. There is some fascinating, interesting, powerful stuff. In Cleveland, voters will have the opportunity to enact one of the strongest and most progressive police accountability approaches anywhere in the country um, to really tackle the fact that the police are policing themselves and therefore are not bringing justice to the folks who have lost their lives to police violence. In Tucson, um, voters will get to vote on a $15 minimum wage. You know, that is still being battled out at the federal level, but folks can't wait. And, you know, Tucson voters will get an opportunity to vote on, on that on November 2nd. We are very proud to be supporting both of those campaigns. And there's also in cities around the country opportunities for folks to make change on reparations in Detroit and, you know, environmental progress in states around the country. So in cities around the country. So I would say first, like, this is not just in presidential year politics. It's not just the midterms. It's every election we have the opportunity to do this. And we're also really excited about the slate of races that we're investing in and supporting in 2022. We get to expand Medicaid in South Dakota. We get to curtail the predatory practices of payday lenders in a bunch of states. We hope to be raising the minimum wage in states in the Midwest. 
So as those come aboard, we really hope that people will be paying attention because I think no matter what issue you care about, you should be thinking not just about your federal representatives, but also where we can make progress even as they are gridlocked or stuck. And I'm watching with great interest, of course, the reconciliation bill. I am disappointed that it looks like we might not get as much as we had hoped. And I also know that if paid leave isn't as ambitious in the federal package as we would want it or need it to be as a society, we want to go out and pass paid leave ballot measures like what passed in Colorado in 2020 in a whole bunch of other states and cities. There are other ways to make progress, and that is the thing that I really want more and more progressives to be thinking about and investing in. It's not just candidates, so candidates are very, very important. But if you're a little disillusioned with candidates sometimes, come aboard. We can pass Medicaid expansion in Oklahoma. We can do. We can win anywhere. Um, I think those are wise words, and, and I think you're so right to, um, you know, really engage folks, um, particularly in some of these, like, off years, right? I think we've fallen into this trap, um, our progressive friends, where we really – I don't think it's on purpose, but I think we just we tend to get mobilized around the every four years, the, the presidentials. And um, I think whether it's the important work that you're doing on the front lines, it's the I, I referenced redistricting before a reference, you know, these um, off year um, governor's elections, these, um, you know, midterm elections. Right. Like that's where the enthusiasm also has to, to hold through. And um, I think the work that you're doing is on the front lines of, you know, making sure that that enthusiasm stays at a fever pitch so that the issues that we care about um, have a seat at the table. Thank you so much. We, we hope that that enthusiasm stays at a fever pitch, both for the proactive work and also for the, the defensive work. I'm a little bit nervous that now that Trump is out of office, those of us in the progressive left, our anger levels have come down a notch. And while that may be good for our blood pressure and our mental health and all sorts of good personal reasons, there's still a lot of dastardly stuff, insidious stuff happening at the state level that if we don't push back against it, our elections are going to look really different the next time we show up to the polls. And so, you know, I've, I've got both a message of hope, we can win anywhere, and also we got to go out there and do it. We've got to invest in in this electoral progress. And of course, don't forget your two rules, win and don't lose. Is that right? Amen. Rule number one <laughs> is win, and rule number two is don't lose. Kelly, um, I think that's a good message to end our conversation on. Um Thank you so much for joining us here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Again, it's Kelly Hall. She's the executive director of the Fairness Project. Um, she and I go way back, and she's doing incredibly important work with a number of partners um, on this issue of ballot measures and um, defending um, access to ballot measures all across the country. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Thank you so much, Joel. Such a joy. Always good to catch up. Again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Playwear, P-L-A-A, Play. And we'll be in touch with you soon. In the meantime, take care and God bless. Goodbye.